Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. I don't know if you're like me, but I am a sucker for inspirational stories about little kids who like meet one of their heroes. And so oftentimes this is like make-a-wish type situations, right? There's a kid and he's sick and he loves like Spider-Man, right? And Spider-Man comes and visits him in the hospital. It's just very heartwarming for me. You surely, uh, if you have access to the internet, have experienced this like video black hole effect where you can like click on one video and it leads to another and it leads to another. And then pretty soon you're like, where did my afternoon go? Could just be me. I'm feeling very lonely by the way you're looking at me. Um, <clears throat> there was a, this week, so it's called football season, and, and this week I, I came across this um, little inspirational video. It was a seventh grader, and he was having some medical issues, and they were at the doctor's office, and the doctor said, come back with the scans, and had figured out what it was, and it was cancer, and he got a cancer diagnosis. Um, but for this kid, at like 12 years old, where cancer was just like too much for him, right? It's a little bit too overwhelming. And so he was like, we're not going to use that word cancer. We're going to use a different word. And so he made all of his doctors and all of his family and all of his friends use a different word instead of cancer anytime that came up in conversation. Apparently the kid was a Ohio State fan. So he was like born and bred to be a, a Buckeye. Um, his parents both went there. They were both in the marching band. They met that way. Dad proposed to her at halftime, right? I mean, this kid was born into this lifestyle. They had a, I think they had a cat named Buckeye, okay? I mean, there was just really no other option for this kid. And their big rival is Michigan. And so the family and the doctor are like, okay, what are we going to call the cancer? And without hesitation, he goes, Michigan. We're calling it Michigan. Uh, and they're like, why Michigan? He's like, we always have to beat Michigan. And he just had this kind of like mental transformation. Um, and you got to see in the video, right, the team kind of come around and support him, and he's doing well today. He recovered from his surgeries and, and treatments and things like that. Um, there's something, I think, about uh, stories about people with uh, severe illness, or chronic illness, or terminal illness, um, and then the help that they can find or the support that they can receive from loved ones or from even strangers. Um, I think the reason these stories are so popular is because they have so much to offer you and I. We want to glean wisdom and truth from situations like this without experiencing it ourselves. Right? I mean, it's a, kind of an extreme situation, extreme challenge that we can all kind of relate to in our own various ways. And yet, so many of us don't go through such dramatic situations, and so we are able to take inspiration and solace from stories like that. I want to, this morning, um, show you one such story of a, a, a patient in the scriptures who gets a diagnosis of terminal illness, finds healing and hope, and, and from there I want to launch off as we continue our series on mental health. Um, so if you have a Bible, flip with me to Isaiah chapter 38. Isaiah chapter 38 is the story, the narrative we'll, we'll dig into this morning. You might not be familiar with it. It's a very unique story. Not heard it preached on a whole lot. It's easy to kind of look over even in the book of Isaiah itself. We're in week three of a sermon series called I've Got Issues, conversation about mental health, mental illness, and the church. And uh, we will wrap it up next week. Um, this morning, what I want to do is talk about and answer this question. What do you do when you find yourself in this situation? What do you do when you find yourself waking up in the morning and you're depressed? 
waking up in the morning and, and you're overcome with anxiety or with fear? What do you do when you are struggling with mental illness? And, and, and this can apply really to all of us in all kinds of situations, from the real severe, like clinically diagnosed mental illnesses, down to just the anxieties and the fears and the times of grief and sadness that we all face in our lives. Where do you go to? What's, what's your go-to move? Where are the resources you reach for in that situation? To do so, I want to um, look at a story of illness and healing that's particularly interesting to me. We find it in Isaiah 38. It's about King Hezekiah. You also find this story in a shorter form in 2 Kings chapter 20. Um, and so you, you get it here in Isaiah 38. It reads like this, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Bad news. Not the news you want from your friendly neighborhood prophet, Isaiah. If you're not familiar with King Hezekiah, he is a king of Israel, and he is largely considered one of the better kings of Judah, the, the southern nation of Israel. Um, a lot of people in, in a lot of places in Scripture, it seems like he's kind of like second best next to King David. So this is a, a guy who's revered. He inherited a kingdom that was a mess. There's a lot of idolatry and paganism and wickedness, and he worked really hard to get rid of all of that and to bring the people of God back to kind of faithful worship. And so he receives praise for that. Um, he is um, given f- kind of flowery language at times in Second Kings about the faith that he had um, in God and the work that he did for God. Uh, he's a young guy. Uh, he became the king at age 25, which is, I'm told, six years from like peak wisdom. Okay, I'm told that 31 years old is where it really all comes together. And so he inherits the throne at 25, and I just, it was a random number, at 25 we think that he's about 39 years old now, if you kind of do the math, adding around different dates and, and times and people mentioned. And so not that old. Now for an ancient person, ancient king, if you just do like lifespans, this is doing okay for Hezekiah, um, but still a lot of life that can be lived. And he, he, he falls sick. And his prophet Isaiah comes and says, you need to get your stuff ready. You need to figure out what's going to come after you because you're not going to last very long. And so Hezekiah does what most of us would do in a, in a situation like that. And he, he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, verse 3, and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hands of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. We didn't know it at the time. Now we do. There was a military siege underway. And so when it rains, it pours. That's the theological phrase for this, right? It's, his kingdom's under attack. He has this debilitating sickness, this terminal illness. Um, and God comes, hears his prayers, and says, I'll fix all of it for you. I love the, the, the phrase that's used here. Isaiah comes back and says, God has heard your prayers, and then what? He's seen your tears. I mean, the care and compassion that's packed in just that one little phrase. I've not just heard your prayers. I've not just decided to, to answer your request. I, I was there with you. I was watching. I was close by. I saw those tears. And so God says, we're going to have a healing. And I love even the way this healing's phrased. He doesn't just say, congratulations, you're no longer 
going to die because of this illness, or congratulations, you're healed, I'm going to do what you've asked me to. He says, you get 15 more years. Like there's even a deadline set on the healing, which just kind of amuses me a little bit. I think there's a lesson to learn from this because as Christians, what we believe is that this side of Jesus' return and the resurrection of the dead, any healing that we receive is just really it's an extension of years, right? I mean, if, if we're sick with whatever kind of illness, cancer, diabetes, an autoimmune disease, mental illness, whatever it might be, it's good and it's appropriate to pray for healing, to seek healing. We know that God desires to bring healing. And yet we know that when we get healing, if we get healing, it's still just what? It's a temporary thing until the eternal healing that we'll all receive in the resurrection of the dead. As someone who struggles with mental illness, I'm all about doing whatever I can to get my brain wired in the most healthy way. The chemicals balanced out, the electricity firing at the, the right, right links. And yet I know well, there's a day is going to come, right, where those chemicals are st- going to start to pull apart again. And the wiring is going to start to fall apart. My hope's not just in what God might do for me now, it's what God will do for all of us at the resurrection of the dead. But Hezekiah gets good news today. He gets 15 more years to his life. God's going to deliver the city. And he gets a sign. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord. The Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the 10 steps by which it had declined. This is a pretty cool sign um, to to kind of track with what he's talking about here. King Ahaz had built a palace that he's in at the time, and you can kind of tell the time by the shadow that's cast on these steps that are leading out onto this kind of balcony. And so in 2 Kings, he gets a choice. Isaiah's like, what kind of sign do you want? He's like, it'd be cool if God like turned back the sun a little bit, and the shadow kind of went up a few steps. And this is what God does for Hezekiah here. Um, In the larger story of Israel, if you were to keep reading this uh, story, this narrative on into chapter 39 or in 2 Kings, what you find is this plays a big role in the story of Israel. So the other nations who are studying the skies for signs, they see that something funky has happened with the sun. And they hear a report of Israel being delivered from this military siege, a king being delivered from this illness. And they come to see what's happened. They come to do some research. And Hezekiah at the time perhaps so relieved from his healing and deliverance of the kingdom, welcomes these foreigners and shows them everything, including perhaps things that maybe he shouldn't have shown them, secrets to the city. And then Isaiah comes and tells them, those guys were from Babylon. And one day they'll be back, unfortunately, and and they'll want everything that they saw. But this is part of a larger story. That's not our concern exactly for this morning. He is delivered. He gets this cool, miraculous sign. And then we have in Isaiah 38, why I like this version over and above the ones we find in in 2 Kings is because we get a psalm here. We get some poetry that Hezekiah wrote um, after his illness and his recovery. Here we have actually a poem for anyone who's struggling with any type of illness or for anyone who wishes to come to God to praise him for recovery from an illness. So writing verse 9 of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness, verse 10, I said in the middle of my days I must depart. 
I am consigned to the gates of Sheol, the grave, for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calm myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. Restore me to health. Make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. This is the type of wisdom that one might come out the other side of a situation like this with. Behold, Hezekiah says, upon reflection of his experience, somehow it was for my welfare that I had this great bitterness. In love you have delivered me, my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you, as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me and will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. There's some beautiful pre-Christ theology here, right? There's no one in, there's the death, the dead don't give God praise. It's the living who are able to sing of God's faithfulness, pass it down to others. And God in Christ comes and says a resounding yes, which is why I make all things alive, which is why I bring life out of death. Now, watch here, verse 21. Now, Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Weird last verse. We just skip over it and keep reading. But I kind of want to focus in on it this morning. The narrative's shortened a little bit in Second Kings, so it's a little bit clearer how this ties into everything else. But, but I wanted to look at this psalm of praise we get in the telling we find in Isaiah. But you have a very interesting story here, okay? It's unlike many of the other healings we have, even in the Old Testament. The prophets are known for being able to accomplish these healings. Um, They're known for being able to give the messages the Lord gives them and pass it on to others, including influencers like kings, um, like Hezekiah here. But what we find in this story is God comes to Hezekiah with news through Isaiah. You're, You're going to pass away. Hezekiah cries out to God, asks for help. Says, please show me some grace and some mercy, extend my life. God answers this prayer. He gives him this really cool, miraculous sign. So far, everything's checking off, right? I mean, this seems to be how God works. And then at the very end, we're told what Isaiah had done, how, how Hezekiah received this miraculous healing was through a cake of figs, or a poultice of figs in older translations. What, what is that? What's happening here? Well, it's very interesting. A cake of figs was a very common physical remedy in the ancient world for skin disorders. We're told he had some kind of boil. Apparently it was really bad. It was threatening his life. Then Isaiah comes with this cake of figs, and they would have baked it, and probably would have been some other ingredients in it, and they would kind of apply it to the skin. And for whatever reason, it was pretty popular. They thought it was pretty effective back here at this time. Um, Maybe think of like a hot press, um, increased circulation, that kind of a thing. And, And this is how God chooses to heal Hezekiah. 
Now, watch what's happening here, right? I mean, this is just not how we normally think of God and prophets and healing. Isaiah the prophet doesn't come and say, like, just sit back, look at the the boil, watch it disappear as God, like, miraculously works. He comes back and says, God's going to heal you. You've got this miraculous sign. Also, I have this cake of figs. (laughs) We're going to put it on. God miraculously heals Hezekiah through a very common widely held, strongly believed, physical, biological remedy of the time. Take this cake of figs, put it on the skin. Now, I love this story because it busts apart these conceptions that we have built up in the modern world of the sacred versus the secular. The physical versus the mental, material versus the spiritual. We often think the world can kind of be divided into certain things. Some things are God's or God's doing. Other things are just the world. And there can be this clean separation between the two of them. And so if God heals, God does it. I mean, it's very obvious. God just does it, and it's this miraculous thing. There's no denying it. If we figure it out, then we were able to do it. And we can get some pat on the back, okay? We get a little bit of credit. But this is not how the prophet works here. It just busts apart all the categories we normally come to God with, we normally think of healing with. Imagine if, if you came to me and you were like, I've got this, this diagnosis, and I'd like prayer for healing. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to pray for you. I'm like, just sit tight in my office for a second. And then I come back with some Tylenol and like a fake prescription pad, right? You're like, this is not your job. <laughs> this is not how God has, wants me to be healed. Just pray. We'll see what happens. But, but Isaiah, the prophet, is, is kind of trailing new, new ground here. He's blazing a new trail. He comes with this, this cake of figs and bursts things uh, apart. Where do we look what do we do when we find ourselves struggling? When we find ourselves in the doctor's office with that diagnosis, struggling to get out of bed, struggling to accomplish the daily task in our lives? Particularly for those who struggle with mental illness. What do we, what do, we do? Where do we look for? Where do we go for help when these things start to plague and assail us? Well, I think the lesson we get here from Hezekiah and that you see throughout the rest of Scripture is that often God desires to bring healing through all sorts of ways. But really the only method of healing that's not available for God is the method that your imagination puts as a limit. And that often through very seemingly regular, seemingly normal, seemingly common sense ways, God works miraculously. Hezekiah, I think, gives us a great example of what one might do when they are struggling. What do they do? Well, they cry out to God. They cry out to God, they ask for help, and then they expect that help in whatever form it might come. You catch that? You cry out to God, you expect the help, and then you don't refuse the cake of figs if it shows up next to you. Right? I mean, you say, no, put that on my arm, let's see what God does. We don't, we don't have to bifurcate this. We don't have to bust God out of these categories and, and expect him to work in one way over another. When we do this, this is often where a lot of the harm has been done inside of the church when it comes to mental illness and getting help for mental illness, any kind of psychological distress. It's because we pigeonhole God into having to work a certain type of way. And you can kind of go both ways with this. Notice the first and biggest thing that Hezekiah does is he, he asks. He cries out to God. Someone struggling with depression, someone struggling with anxiety, a symptom of of any other kind of of mental illness? What's the first thing? What's maybe the biggest thing that we're called to do 
where are we called to find our cake of figs? If God so chooses to provide it, the side of the resurrection, well, I think it's going to be found through asking, through asking for help, through being vulnerable. People find it hard to ask for help. People find it hard to be honest. People find it hard to seek treatment for lots of different things. And then when it comes to something like mental illness, this gets compounded because of certain stigmas that come around issues like this. And this is true outside of the church as well as inside of the church. You just kind of get different ones. And they kind of compound in certain ways. People don't like to ask for help because... They don't like to feel weak. They don't want to be rejected if they ask for help and and, and they're hurt. They don't want to feel like a burden to someone else. People don't want to be needy. This is something that we all kind of take in 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 various levels in our lives. Men, women, adults, children. And yet, if we're doing our job as Christians, if we're being formed in Christian thought and practice and faithfulness, Hopefully, one of the jobs of this formation has been to bust this apart completely so that in that moment of acute distress, you're not struggling with the, I don't want to be a burden because you've already been taught over and over and over and over and over again. You are a burden. You are needy. You are weak. You are dependent on God and on other people for everything. And the Christian community is a place where we bear one another's burdens as Christ has borne our burden. And presuppose under all of this is that I'm heavy and people are going to have to support me and, and you have some heaviness and people are going to have to support you too. We're burdeny people. We should have this kind of kicked out of us. Hopefully, by the time we really need it and need to be able to ask for help, be able to be vulnerable and open ourselves up to other people. But for lots of different reasons, the church sometimes has a hard time doing this. We have a hard time being a safe place. We have a hard time being a place where people feel comfortable opening up, asking for help. And this can be just super, super dangerous, super unfortunate. Next week, as we wrap up the series, we'll talk about what the church can do to address some of the things that we've been talking about. But one of the things, just to kind of preview one of the things the church can do is it can work really hard on trying to create an environment of safety and openness where people feel invited to ask for help, where people feel comfortable sharing the fact that they're weak and they're needy and they have burdens that the other people can support and can help with. One of the ways the church can do this is by modeling it. It's just by going first. Being honest about your weaknesses has this very weird like flow to it where, where as soon as you're honest, just speaking it into the air, people feel more able to open up about their own issues or able to be more honest. Almost any time I put something online about struggling with mental illness, I get a message asking, hey, do you know a therapist? Hey, can you pray for me for this or for that? And nothing crazy magical to it. It's just being honest, opening up. This is, this is my weakness. I'm needy. I'm dependent. There's something I celebrate in Christ because he has met those needs. He has come to heal and to restore and to make whole. One of the things you can do as a Christian, one of the things we can do as a church, is you can ask for help first. So there's this 
paradoxical effect of asking for help that makes it easier for others to ask you for help. Like there's a sociologist who says this is a good way to just make a neighbor. It's just to ask them to do something for you. Because what you're doing is you're creating a situation in which they now feel comfortable to ask you for something. In a weird way, by asking them, hey, can I have a cup of sugar? You've now created this relationship where they can say, hey, I need something. If you have a a, a friend and, and you're wondering, like, how can I get from this relationship where we're just friends and we talk kind of on the surface level to like a spiritual kind of, um, I can bear your burden, you can bear my burden. There's some easy ways to kind of take these steps. One is just ask them to pray for you. Say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Will you pray for me this week? And weirdly, here's what that does, right? That now like just launches a big bridge into the relationship. And now they feel like they can ask you perhaps for prayer. They can open up to you about certain needs that you have in your life. To receive help, we have to often ask for it. We have to be vulnerable. And the church needs to work very hard at being a safe place. Our sanctuaries have to be sanctuaries. There are a lot of reasons why it's hard for people to open up. One um, trauma counselor was looking at the church and, and he was noting how helpful having a strong faith community can be as a support system for people struggling with uh, trauma and abuse and things of that nature. But he also was pointing out some like just peculiar things about the church that sometimes make it harder for these things to occur. So if statistics hold true, we know in a lot of group settings like this, there's a child who's being hurt in some way or a woman who's being hurt in some way. And here's the weird like dynamics of a lot of churches. A lot of the times... Right now, that person's sitting next to the person who's hurting them. Right? I mean, there's just a lot of different things like this that make it harder, more difficult. So what can we do? Well, we can, we can model it. We can, we can show people. It's okay to, to show our weaknesses. It's okay for, ask for to ask for help. We can come true on it when people do. When people ask for help, we can help them and support them. Not push things aside because they're inconvenient or cover them up because they're embarrassing. We can take care of people, make it our responsibility. We can cultivate a place where people might feel comfortable asking, asking for help. Where might our cake of figs come if we wake up and, and we're struggling from mental illness? Well, because of how complex mental illness is, like most things in life, my recommendation, if I were to step into Isaiah the prophet's shoes here, would be to shoot in all directions. I don't think it's as simple as it's just a spiritual thing or it's just a, a physical thing or it's just a, a cultural or social thing. I think we, we've got to shoot in all directions. Where Does the cake of fig often come for someone struggling with mental illness? Well, it often comes through spiritual direction and spiritual growth. And this would be my advice is, is if you're struggling with depression, anxiety, whatever it might be, you should lean into God, the one who created you and loves you, the one who sees your tears, and hears your prayers. Now, what we can do sometimes is to avoid what we talked about last week where, like, mental illness is solely about spiritual issues and we kind of, like, blame people who have mental illness, like, if only you had enough faith, is we can, like, walk the, all the opposite direction from that. And now there's, there's no real spiritual emphasis when it comes to treating or, or seeking relief for someone with a mental illness. But this is simply to kick the baby out with the bathwater, right? Any issue in our life, should lead us to what? Pursue God. 
I mean, it's, if nothing else, it's a good excuse, right? Okay, I'm struggling with depression. Let me lean into prayer. There's just like a, man, this is graduate level stuff. There's never a situation in life where like, maybe if I really committed myself to prayer more, that's not a good answer, right? No matter what you're going through, no matter what the situation is, lean into, lean into prayer. Lean into the, the scriptures. Seek to find solace and comfort in your identity as God's creation, God's beloved child. In my own life, in my own struggles with depression and anxiety, spiritual growth, spiritual direction that I have received has often been where God has shown up and brought healing and comfort in the form of a, a cake of figs. It's in the scriptures where I find the language that helps me think about my own suffering and struggles. It's in the scriptures where I find the hope that I have in Christ. It's in the scriptures where I'm encouraged to continue going and taking step after step after step. It's in the Christian community where we have heroes of the faith who have gone through things like this, where I know I'm not alone, both in the scriptures and outside of the scriptures. What a gift it is to the church that if you are struggling with depression, if you're struggling with anxiety, if you're struggling with bipolar disorder, if you're struggling with schizophrenia, there are Christian people who have gone through this before. And they've left us nuggets of wisdom, beautiful literature for you and I to hold on to, for you and I to find comfort in, find help in, find solace in. Seeking Spiritual direction, growing in our faith is, is always a good answer, and it's a good answer, it's a good direction for someone to take who's struggling with these things that occur in, in mental illnesses and in psychological disorders, times of psychological distress. But we shouldn't just keep it there. I'd encourage you to also shoot in every direction. Ask for help, be vulnerable. Expect God to show up, but don't know exactly beforehand exactly how he has to do it or where it has to come from. So if you're struggling with mental illness or symptoms of mental illness, if your mental health is not at 100%, my recommendation, where God often shows up in a cake of figs, is with a therapist. Get a therapist. You need a therapist. You need to find someone to talk to and can walk you through these type of things. This is not just like a pastoral issue to me. This is not just like a Christian thing to me. It's like a human thing to me. I think every human being should have a good therapist. I don't know if you've met human beings. I've met a couple of them. They're not all 100%. I've yet to meet one who's gotten, however far they've gotten in life, without coming up with some issues along the way. Without some things they were told happening, maybe some biological things happening. There's lots of things for them to work through. And so I say, seek a, a therapist. Is this a magic bullet? No, none of these are magic bullets. These are all just ways in which God might show up and bring comfort and healing in the form of a, a cake of figs, a poultice. A therapist can be a really beautiful thing. I have a therapist that I see. I adore her. It's good for you that I have a therapist that I see regularly. But it's hard work, right? It, there can be a financial constraint to it. We have to acknowledge that. There are social, cultural, political issues all around things with mental health. We have to look into things like poverty, cycles of abuse, 
systems perhaps of injustice that can contribute to things like this. And then just lack of availability to care sometimes. And sometimes actually going to see a therapist, I mean, it just costs too much for most people. This is a church, one of the ways that we can support us financially. But to go see a, like a trained professional who's seen things like this before, who knows how to help, who is up to date on the latest research. I'm very interested as a pastor in what is called pastoral malpractice. It's not a legal thing. I don't think you can sue me about this. But like any type of malpractice, right, it occurs when out of ignorance, willingly or unwillingly, someone who's a professional might hurt someone else who comes to them for help. And what happens sometimes in pastoral care is someone will come with symptoms of mental illness and malpractice will be done, will occur, because that pastor will think, I can handle this on my own. And oftentimes, if someone comes to me and they're really struggling with deep depression, serious anxiety, I'm going to say, this is called a referral. Let me help you find a a trained professional. Who, I'm also not going to treat your cancer or your diabetes or your weird rash. This, none of these are my, none of these are on my plate. Now again, be, <laughs> people are calling each other out now. As I've talked openly about my mental health struggles, what I found is some pastors commit malpractice doing the opposite. Right? I mean, they refer, and then it's like you don't exist anymore. No, right? I mean, you still got to push in the spiritual direction. Still got to grow and mature spiritually. But a professional can sometimes make all the difference there. Therapy is where human beings go to shadow box. It's, it's where you go to work on cycles of thinking or behaving, beliefs or narratives that you've built into yourself, where you can be completely honest and open something that even sometimes the best of churches struggle to do or to have available to every person at all times. And so that relationship is really important. Now, it's difficult. It's hard sometimes to find a great therapist. Personally, I won't recommend a therapist unless I've gone to them myself or I know someone who has gone to them for a good period of time and I know the results. To try to find a therapist, the type of thing, you need to do interviews. You need to be willing to walk away if you don't feel that trust is there. I'm not sure I've lost friends over this, but it's not a super popular opinion in my circles, but, but I'm, I'm not always convinced that Christian counselors are the best counselors to go to. Let me explain what I mean by this. Just real generally, outside of just therapy, sometimes people use the word Christian as an adjective, as a synonym for mediocre. Like, it's a Christian movie. Well, no, it was just kind of like a eh, movie. Not all the time. I'm not trying to offend anybody. But sometimes Christian stands in the place of like up to date on the latest current research. And then part of this is just my own situation. So I'm a theologian. So it's going to be very difficult for me to go to a counselor and be analyzing the theology they're presenting me. That might not be true for everybody. But here's also what I, I think through is like, what if the theology's off a little bit? There's a lot of different types of theology, right? There are a lot of different beliefs about God. What if it's off a little bit and it poisons the well of advice? Particularly when it comes to something so sometimes fragile and so important as one's mental health, I want to make sure that that person is not led by an ideology that will override like best practices, the latest current research, evidence-based treatment plans. Does that make sense? No problem with Christian counselors. I know some very good ones. 
But in my own life, there have been times where, where I'm purposely not looking for that. I just want someone who's, who's smart, who I can trust, who I can really lean on and find support in. We, we ask for help. We're vulnerable. We say, I'm a burden. I'm needy. I'm weak. Where can I find this support? Medication. Now, again, in the church, there's this weird stigma around mental health and medication for mental health. And in some places, it doesn't really exist. In some places, it's like supercharged. Um, a couple surveys were done, and this is not supposed to be indicative of everybody or of all American Christians or anything like that. But in these surveys, hundreds of people, um, a couple different times, they found about one-fourth of people thought that their church was against taking psychiatric medicine, psychotropic medicine. Now, there are some churches or denominations or groups that do teach this. Maybe others, it's just kind of this unspoken kind of stigma. Maybe some people just got the wrong impression, right? That's a pretty high number, one in four people. And there are groups who, who do kind of stand over and against this. Um, there are, the, if you do the surveys, if you really follow the, the, the research, the more fundamentalist the theology of a group, typically the more opposed they are to things like psychology, psychiatry, medications for these things. As someone who has been on antidepressants and anxiety medicine, who is on antidepressants and anxiety medicine, let me just tell you from personal experience, I think sometimes God's cake of figs comes through medication. And it can be very dangerous to, to draw that line and say it's not going to happen this way because a real, a real illness unchecked can sometimes lead to very dangerous and destructive places. Now, again, there's pendulums to all of this, right? So just as there's like a Sunday school counseling where there's a Bible verse for everything, there's a, a other side of the coin to that in the medical world where there's like a pill for everything. By no means am I suggesting like just take all the pills you can. No, it's important to understand the medicine, to look at the research, see what the side effects are. Some of these are really gnarly, nasty things. To look at how effective it is, some of them maybe aren't so effective as we, we've thought. But I know some Christians who have been prescribed or advised to take medication and they don't do it simply because they think it reveals some lack of faith on their part or it shows them going, trying to find help somewhere other than God. And I just think you're, you're cutting yourself off here. I think this is not wise. I think that's not the path to go down. We're embodied people. So many symptoms of mental illness have a biological component to them. A genetic component at times, an anatomical component at times. And so as humans, we not only have to ask for help, but we have to take care of ourselves. This is what we sometimes miss. Self-care just in this context, taking care of our mental health is an act of discipleship. Let me say that again. It's an act of discipleship to take care of your mental health. It's an act of faithfulness towards Christ and towards his calling on your life. You cannot be the father you've been called to be, the mother you've been called to be, the wife, the husband you've been called to be, the worker you've been called to be, the neighbor, the friend you've been called to be, unless you're as healthy as you can be at that moment. We are embodied people, a, a theology that, that acknowledges that. Helps us get to a place where we understand that taking care of our bodies, taking care of our minds, taking care of our thoughts, 
These are all things we do in obedience to Christ in order to position ourselves more faithfully to know him and love him and follow him and be used in his mission and in his kingdom. Again, I would, I would say we're shooting in every direction. Nutrition, exercise, sleep. These are all some really basic things, but, but in people with mental illness, these things can get out of a whack and have disproportionate negative consequences. And again, this is kind of true for everybody, right? Like, no matter where you are right now, we could all probably be a little bit closer to 100% if we looked at our nutrition. If we looked at our exercise, the way we're moving our bodies, if we, if we looked at the way we're sleeping, the cycles of rest that we're putting our, our bodies through. This doesn't sound like super spiritual stuff to us, right? It sounds like a cake of figs. It's like, why are we even talking about this in church? But sometimes Isaiah the prophet shows up with a cake of figs and says, this is how God wants to heal you. I know it breaks apart some categories in your mind, but as embodied human beings whom God has come to restore and heal, the way he's going to do this is often probably going to be through these biological, seemingly normal, regular things in our lives. I'll never forget the first psychiatrist I ever saw. I was 16 years old. It was like 10 years too late. Walked in. I was having panic attacks like every 30 minutes at this time. I was really depressed. Walked in with a bottle of blue Gatorade. Now, nothing against Gatorade or the blue color of Gatorade. But walked in. I'll never forget what he said. And this guy is a guy who could have been, he's passed, um, but he, he's a guy who could have maybe been accused by some people of being like a pill mill type doctor, right? Like, you come in, pay your money, and like, I write your prescription, you go on with your life, right? Which is a time in my life was a little appealing to me. But even him, the first time I ever saw him, first thing he said to me was, do you drink this blue Gatorade a lot? I'll never forget it. I was like, yeah, it's my favorite drink. He was like, stop. Start drinking water instead of that. I don't know why. I have no study, he said, for you. I have no, like, research for you. Except to say that I see teenage boys who come in holding blue Gatorades, and they have anxiety and depression. And it's very possible there's something to do with the food diet and things of that nature, combined with someone who's maybe prone to certain things, has certain genetic traits, biological issues going on. But those things compound on each other. And he said the same thing about ice cream at one point, and I rejected that as a man of faith. <laughs> He was like, I'm not sure if depressed people eat ice cream or if ice cream causes depression. And I was like, I am sure that you are out of your league here. <laughs> but he was like, look, no matter how many pills I give you, right, you're putting way more into your body every day. No matter what, what I prescribe to you, the things you're doing with your body, the patterns that you're engaging in, the routines you've set up for yourself, the relationships that you are and these are all having a profound effect on your mood and your behavior and your emotions and your thinking. What, what happens is just in acute times of pain or distress, we often get a good reminder from God to take care of ourselves. It's called stewardship. To say, yes, I'm an embodied creature with a complex array of biological and material and chemical things going on in my life and to the ability that I can, the knowledge that I have, I'll be faithful. And I'm not doing this as a way to shirk my responsibility to God. I'm doing it out of my responsibility to God. It's an act of faith. It's an act of faithfulness. There was a, a, a popular book that argued that because emotional pain often leads people into a greater dependency on God, it would be irresponsible for a Christian, say, to take antidepressant. 
and blunt that emotional pain. Well, I mean, this is how a lot of people think. And no one can argue with some of this, right? I mean, yeah, you struggle emotionally. It can lead you to growth and maturity in, in other areas. But we just got to really work through all these kind of thoughts real logically and accept that we are embodied creatures. It's not something to be embarrassed about. We don't do this in other realms of our life, right? I mean, if you have physical pain, there is no weird stigma around, like, taking Tylenol for this. Physical pain can also cause you to depend on God. We just got to be real careful with the, the conclusions, with the end of the path of some of the things that we say, some of the things we repeat, some of the beliefs we propagate, that we allow to continue and to go forth. Having a community, a strong community, having relationships you can depend on is huge. Unfortunately, a lot of mental illness kind of acts anti-relationally. It can make one isolate. It can make relationships harder to cope with, to function. And, and so it's really good, not prevention, but preparation. It's really good to find a community where you can be honest and open and find help and support before you find yourself in the middle of a situation like this. Because it can be all that much harder, right, to try to find one. Now, it can still be done. It still happens. It happens here at this church. I see people come in crisis and find a, a community of people that they can lean on and find support in. It's just more difficult. You're set up a little bit better if you can get that work in beforehand. If you can not only work to create this type of environment, but also seek it out yourself. Find that community. Find those friends. When we talk about community groups here at the church, I often think of it in terms of getting like 3 a.m. friends. Who are your friends in the church community? You could call it 3 a.m., right, when the crisis hits. Who are those people who you're going to text? Those are the type of relationships that if you build them, those are a foundation that are going to hold you strong through tough times. So what do we do when we find ourselves in a place of struggle? What do we do when we ask for help? We acknowledge our our weaknesses and our needs. We admit to our vulnerability. And there's no shame in that. And then we seek to steward our lives to the best of our ability. We expect and receive and give thanks for that help wherever it comes in our lives. However the Lord chooses to work and to heal. And at times it might be miraculous and at times it might be seemingly really normal and regular. And at times, we might find healing quickly. And at times, maybe most of the time, we're just going to find things are really messy and recovery and healing is a long process. And then even in that, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that we're part of a larger story of healing. Which is that whatever healing and growth, restoration that we find now in this life is only a shadow, it's a foretaste of the disease-free, fully functioning, glorified bodies that we'll receive in the resurrection. Thinking about the resurrection has always brought me lots of hope as a Christian. And, and even when I think of mental health, it does so. Like I'm pretty sure that, that there are just ways my brain is wired, particularly after a lot of different events throughout my life now, and, and chemical formulas in there, right, that are just, we're always seeking to find the right balance there for that. But I'm pretty confident that one day, after Jesus returns, 
and all humans are raised again, that my neurological functioning is going to be pretty stellar. And the levels of dopamine and serotonin, these are all going to be working just fine for me. And the relationships that I need, the support that I need, the people around me, this is all going to have come together in this perfect and beautiful, harmonious symphony that we call God's kingdom. And so even if it takes long now, or even if at times it doesn't seem just to be God's plan for me right now, it doesn't seem like it's in the cards at this moment, this still doesn't knock me off of this larger track, this larger story that I am in, this longer path that I am on, the most beautiful ending that one can possibly imagine. But you and I, right now, we're in the trenches. And when we wake up in the trenches, we've got to be willing to ask for help. To not ask for help is really just to ask for trouble. We've got to be willing to look for and find and rejoice in the healing we find from God, no matter where it comes from. Knowing that just because we find it in this place or that place doesn't mean it didn't come from Christ. I mean, that was Christ's gift to us in this or that place. We come to the table every week knowing that our healing comes from Christ. Whatever healing we may attain to right now in this life and our ultimate eternal healing, it's all centered in him. Whether it comes from exercise, medicine, therapy, all of it a gift from a good God who created and redeemed, all of it a gift mediated to us, made available to us because of Christ, because of his body given for us. And so this morning, we wrap up our worship service as we do every Sunday with one of the perhaps most centering aspects of discipleship as we seek to find our healing and wholeness in God. We come and say we need Christ, and it's in Christ. All of our hope, all of our joy, all of our peace, our past, our present, our future, all of it is bound up in him. Our fate is wrapped beautifully and unable to be disconnected from the fate of this one. God become flesh, who gave his body, gave his blood, that we might receive life.